working on economic development in rural places is different than in other parts of the country. I think there's a, a tendency to hope that if we just attract some big business to come in and set up shop, there's going to be jobs for everybody who wants them, and you know, that would be great. But it's really not how a lot of economic development happens. Welcome to the 457 SEO, a place for stories, information, and observations about our communities here in Southeast Ohio. I'm Aaron Payne. I'm Allison Hunter. I'm Susan Tebbin. And I'm Atish Baidya. In this episode, you'll meet one of our newest members of the WEB News team, Emily Vota, and she'll share some details on what's happening in the area's arts and culture scene and talk about some witches. And in our second segment, we asked for it, we got it the public opinion of a local a local farmer born and raised in southeast Ohio. Nick talks industrial agriculture, the type of asshole he'd rather have on his side in government, and what we, we here at WOUB should be doing to help our democracy thrive. But first, I sat down one-on-one with a former southeast Ohio lawmaker about her new role in Athens County and how she wants to see southeast Ohio grow. I'm Debbie Phillips. I am currently working as the development director for Rural Action, which is a nonprofit working in about an 18 county area here in southeastern Ohio. Um, Immediately prior to this job, I was the state representative for this house district for about a three and a half county area for the last eight years. What does southeast Ohio need to get into a, a better and brighter tomorrow? You know, I think one of the key things that we need to focus on working on economic development in rural places is different than in other parts of the country. I think there's a a tendency to hope that if we just attract some big business to come in and set up shop, there's going to be jobs for everybody who wants them and, you know, that would be great. But it's really not how a lot of economic development happens. What Rural Action does and some of the other nonprofits in the area like ACENET and, you know, people who work together in a lot of these areas is to try to do sector-based economic development to try to create our own opportunities. And I, I think that that is a key, that there have been waves of people who come from outside the region who all of a sudden have noticed that there is poverty and need in this region. It's really not appropriate to like come in and tell people how they ought to be living or what they ought to be doing, right? right. I mean, we are we are a region that is in a really deep transition. This is part of the, the coal field region of the country. It's been almost like a third world country or a colony of the United States, the way so much of the industry has been extractive and a lot of the wealth that came from all of that activity left the region as well. And other people profited off all of the rich assets that we've had here in not just southeastern Ohio, but all throughout the Appalachian region. I I think that if we're going to change that story and change that narrative, 
we really have to listen to people <clears throat> about what they love about the region and what the assets are and work to strengthen those things. A great example of the kind of work that has been effective here is looking at our regional food economy and not just the farmer's market, but look at the like the Chester Hill produce auction and and the incubator kitchens and you know folks who are starting businesses and marketing products and being able to actually bring some money into the region. Mm-hmm. Like they do at ASNET. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of these groups work together very strongly to build this sector. But that kind of economic development where people are getting access to some resources and some coaching and help with business planning, those kinds of activities are building assets that are based here in our community so that the money that's made stays here and is reinvested in our local community. So that's really, it's just one example of that. You know, the Chester Hill Produce Auction is something that is supported by Rural Action. We own the facility there and have been working with that group to try to increase access to markets. They've also been doing wood products and furniture and things like that. It's the kind of thing where we can take some of the the assets of the region instead of just people timbering their land and making a little bit of money one time, doing some value add to those wood products and being able to sell things for more and get some more money rolling in the local economy. I don't think there's any one simple answer for what is gonna make the difference here, but I think a lot of it is about changing the way that we think about it so that instead of thinking about economic development being just about how are we going to get somebody to build a thing here Mm -hmm. to think about it in terms of what do people want to do what opportunities are there how can we support people to build and grow their own businesses and their own jobs you know look at what happened with the grocery store in Benton County Mm -hmm. Uh, we were able rural action was able to provide some support for country fresh stops in the interim there were a bunch of convenience stores that offered some produce and some deli meats to try to make sure that this entire county that didn't have a grocery store Mm -hmm. would have access to some you know higher quality and fresh food but it took everybody working together to finally you know get somebody willing to actually come in and and put in a full service grocery store so and it was a couple years going through that process so that's getting private involvement local government involvement, state financing, uh, federal financing, all working together to make that happen. But that wasn't someone outside the region coming in and being like, oh, we're going to help you folks. That was local people working really, 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 really hard to make the case that this is what the need is and then bring some investment in to help make that happen. And speaking about rural rural action, can you explain a little bit your role as rural action? I know you just started, right? Yeah. So I just started at the beginning of the year as the development director. So working mainly on trying to increase our membership and uh, local support for the work. A lot of the work that rural action does is either grant funded or contract funded um, for doing things like the watershed restoration work, cleaning up the acid mine drainage. We really feel like there needs to be more of a focus on broadening the base of support in the local community so that we're going to have that longer term stability and more flexibility really to listen to what local folks want to do instead of like, oh, well, there's a grant for this thing that's kind of like the other thing. So we don't want to be so reliant on the priorities of 
funders from other places. We really want to broaden out the base of support for the work here locally. Right. And how do we do that? I think part of it is just making sure people have opportunities to get involved. It's really amazing to see the variety of work that is being done, whether it's Things like the environmental education team is doing library programs at a lot of different libraries in the county to the uh, the middle Tuscaroras uh, watershed folks are up there doing uh, workshops on uh, riparian corridors and how to best manage your streams on your property. And okay. they're having those, you know, in a bunch of different communities up there. Um, we have our adventure auction um, wow. Saturday the 8th. So that's, you know, lots of different kinds of events that are going on and ways that people can get involved. And that's sort of rolling people into, you can be involved and these are the things that you mm-hmm. can do. Is that sort of what, mm-hmm. the, what the goal is? I'm really struck recently by the impact of the opiate epidemic in our region and some of the research that has come out about the increase in mortality and morbidity for like middle-aged white men. And it's these are being described as illnesses and deaths of despair and hopelessness. I don't mm. know if you read the, the research that has come out, but there have been increases in addiction and obesity and diabetes and suicide. And, you know, all, and they basically were lumped together as um, diseases and deaths that are attributed to hopelessness and despair. It's incredibly sobering, right, mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. to really think about what's happening in our communities. Part of what we can do in the nonprofit sector and in faith communities is make sure that we are connecting with people to try to re-engage and have a sense of meaning and purpose. When people are in recovery, it is one thing to say, you know, that you're going to work really hard to stay sober and not do the bad thing, the thing that you know is, you know, so destructive. But if you don't have something positive to hold on to that you're working toward, that's going to be a really, really hard and bleak road to travel. So whether people are trying to get it together so they can get their kids back or, you know, whatever the focus is, people need to feel a sense of purpose and like they're part of something that matters in the community. And I don't know what the answer is, but we are increasingly isolated. I don't know whether it's social media, whether it's economic pressures, you know, all the different things that have led to more isolation. But I think that if people get outside and, you know, spend some time gardening, doing things with other people where they feel like they're making a difference in the community, any of those things help to build those social bonds and build a sense of community and a sense of hope that we can get things done together. Mm-hmm. None of it is simple or short term, but I think that if we are really engaging and listening to people about what's needed in local communities mm-hmm. and they can help work toward those goals, I think it's going to solve more than one problem. Uh, we've heard from a few different people on 457SEO that there is a stigma about Southeast Ohio that once you hit about the bottom of 270 it almost doesn't exist that's what uh, randy smith from meigs county has said do you feel that there's a stigma as well do you think that's an unfair thing that that southeast ohio has to deal with in my experience in the legislature legislators are very parochial right they they know their own community pretty well Mm -hmm. but they don't necessarily understand what other parts of the state are like 
And so it isn't always stigma as much as it's just completely not knowing what it's like somewhere different. In Governor Kasich's first budget, he um, proposed cutting the local government funds about in half the percentage that came to local governments. The county auditor from Vinton County came up and testified in committee. And she said, I, I want you to understand that if this cut happens, we won't have one person on the county payroll who is not an elected official. So we'll have the sheriff, but not one sheriff's deputy. We'll have the clerk of courts, but nobody else working in that office. And is it good in the state of Ohio for us to have a county where there's no law enforcement? It'd be like the Dukes of Hazard, right? Like you cross <laughs> the county line and you're you're good. <laughs> you know. And there were legislators from suburban areas whose, you know, their jaw just dropped there. You couldn't imagine a community that was so small that that got local government fund meant the difference between having a sheriff's deputy or not having a sheriff's deputy. Yeah. So she was able to make the case and they put in a provision that the smaller counties would be protected, that there would be a cutoff and counties that had below a certain amount of funding overall weren't going to be subject to this local government fund cuts. So it wasn't stigma as much as it was just that it was not something that had ever crossed the minds of legislators from other places. And so we need to you know, be mindful of the fact that there could be stereotypes, but we also need to just show up and make the case for what we need. Back to rural action. Sure. Um, what what's in the future for rural? What what are we doing? Uh to bring about this change and, and to stand up, as you're saying. We have a program that's focused around social enterprise, which is businesses that provide some social benefit as well. Our current social enterprises are the Chester Hill Produce Auction and Zero Waste Event Productions. Mm-hmm. So those are both projects of rural action. Zero Waste are the folks you see at Nelsonville Music Festival right. diverting all of that stuff from the landfill. I think they were at 92% of the waste from Nelsonville Music Fest was diverted from the landfill last year. So mm-hmm. Stuff that was recycled and composted instead of heading for the landfill. So Did they do that at the Pawpaw Festival as well? Yeah. Okay. I yeah. Think they hit even closer then, I believe. Yeah. And they are um, you know, working in other festivals around the state as well. So that is a business and they are working toward being able to become an a, you know, an independent profitable business with a social mission. Right. Sure. So we have that social enterprise program and as part of that work we are going to be working in a number of communities on a, a project we're calling Entrepreneurial Communities. The idea is to work with local people in particular towns mm-hmm. to identify not only what are the needs, but what are the places where there could be some opportunity. So if a particular community really needs childcare or really needs lawns mode or whatever the thing is where somebody might be able to start a business and get some coaching and be able to start creating some income for themselves that serve the needs that exist in those local communities. So really trying to work from that community organizing approach to figure out what opportunities are out there where where people could start some enterprises that could be useful and also profitable. So you have a successor in Jay Edwards who's actually starting um, a fight about the opioid epidemic, um, taking a tour as we speak of the area. Um, Do you have any ideas for him what kind of things he should be 
focusing on? I know you can't speak for him, uh, mm -hmm. but you've you've done it for a number of years. What kind of things did well, you I, learn to focus on? I met with him a couple times. Mm -hmm. um, immediately after the election, I asked him if he wanted to come in and sit down and just, you know, catch up on some of the things I was working on. And also, I wanted to give him information about some constituent matters that were kind of longer term, just so nobody would get left behind in the transition. So right. it was a really productive discussion in our region, looking at local government fund issues, looking at public education, trying to figure out better responses for addiction services and, and mental health services. I think those are all really important. I'm glad to see that he's interested in that. Um, and appreciate the fact that he's been you know, willing to stay in conversation with me about some things. And from a state standpoint, um, do you think that things will right in the end with the budget and with getting the Southeast Ohio the things that they need? It's always going to be a struggle when resources are limited and you know when aren't they mm -hmm. so I, you know I think that we always have to stand up and try to fight for equity you know, when you look at an issue like school funding I think one of the best examples I can give about why it needs to be addressed at a state level is there was a time when Trimble had a school district income tax so Trimble is one of the poorest school districts in the state. If you look at the property values, you know, usually first or second poorest in the state, it flips back and forth. And when they had a school district income tax, they had the highest tax effort of any school district in the state. Tax effort takes a look at the wealth that exists in a community and what percentage of people's income they are paying in taxes. Mm -hmm. People in Trimble were digging deeper than any other school district in the state but still, you know, didn't have enough to adequately pay for the, the education that kids are entitled to. If we have these shared values, and one of those values is that no matter where you are, you should have an equal opportunity for a good education so that you can decide what you want to do with your life. That's kind of a core American value, right? right. Um, so if we have these shared values, then we have to fund them equitably. It's just un-American to think that the kids who are born in one zip code have such glaringly different opportunities from kids who are born in another zip code. You know, we have to keep fighting for that fair opportunity for our kids. Yes, we've got to kind of pick ourselves up and create opportunity here, and we have to keep advocating for policies that are going to treat people fairly in our region. I think it takes both. When we come back... If you look at the, the president, the Senate, the Congress, it's all a dysfunctional mess. And to think that any of them have my interests, my family's interests at heart, and it's, it's ridiculous. The gloves come off in the 457 SEO's first ever public opinion segment. Yeah, my name's Nick Nolan. I'm a head entrepreneur at Laurel Valley Creamery Farmstead Cheese. You know, uh, I, I have a lot of opinions and a lot of stuff that doesn't really isn't coherent. But, you know, I, I spend most of my time under a cow. So I'm listening <laughs> to all this public radio coming to me as, you know, I'm out here working day to day, you know. Full disclosure, uh, Nick and I have had a few conversations before. They're pretty, they're usually pretty wide ranging and um, 
and challenging? Do we challenge each other? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. So, um, but you may have seen Nick at the uh, one of the farmers markets and and all, and um, you've may engaged in a conversation or two with him. But we invited Nick here to four five seven SEO to get his perspective and opinions. And I'll start with the main question that we ask anyone who comes here: What does Southeast Ohio need? And how do we get it? How do we work toward it? How do we hold the people that we voted for or didn't vote for accountable to our our needs, our needs and our demands? Right. You know, the people we elect for public office, it's a shameful display of, uh, of democracy. I, the way that I feel about it is that most of the people that represent me in Congress and local government, you know, uh, you get it down to a county level, maybe it's a little bit more real because they're dealing with the issues that affect me. If you look at the, the president, the Senate, the Congress, it's all a dysfunctional mess. And to think that any of them have my interests, my family's interests at heart, and it, it's, it's ridiculous. It would be, uh, you know, negligent of me to assume that. Well, what are your interests? I'll start there. What are your and your family's interests? Being able to go out and get a part of that American dream, your uh, uh, you know, pursuit of happiness, what you're going to go out and try and carve out for yourself to where you're going to uh, make a change in the world that you're going to pass on to the next generation. And what you want to do is go out and make that positive. I've, I've chosen to do mine through uh, agriculture. Because I grew up in an agricultural community, I understand that. And I come from a long line of people that are uh, involved in that. And trying to go out in this environment and try and do that, you got so many things leaning against you. you got uh, industrial agriculture. you got all the lobbyists that they employ. you got refined foods. The, the whole food industry is leaning towards us make everything the same, us not change that, us, us further and further process everything and try and get the agricultural part out of it. And then you have the other side of it, the, the people, it's a, it's a very capitalist society. And you look at milk and cows in particular, like what I do, the government comes in and they set what the price of milk is. And if you're milking cows and you're selling to a local distributor, you're going to get so much money per hundred. And you live by that. You're getting a check twice a month. And if you don't break yourself away from that, you have no chance at an economic future. It's just a race to the bottom. And there's a lot of different reasons why they do that. I mean, you look at, like, uh, uh, going out and establishing price points for different things. The government would not do that on the healthcare industry. If not, there wouldn't be any debate. You'd say, oh, well, an, an EKG is worth this. A mammogram's worth this. Every person gets so much money to go out and substantiate themselves. We're giving it to their health care provider and have a single-payer system like you see most other you know, industrialized countries in the world. That would level the playing field. i got to worry about health care and taking care of my family and paying all of those bills. And then you look at going out and competing on a global marketplace. When you're making cheese, you know, a particular type of, like, raw milk artisan type of cheese that we produce, you're competing with people that's in France. You're competing with people in Belgium. You're competing with people in Germany and Italy and places like that to try and make the best cheese in the world. What you're competing against also is universal health care, which all these countries have. You know, they're all guaranteed subsidies. If you're competing against people that's in the EU country, they subsidize farmers for milk that they don't produce. In America, it's a race to the bottom. You see, if you're not getting bigger in milking cows and in agriculture, then you're moving out. The way that I grew up in Gallia County, southeastern Ohio, was that the whole countryside was proliferated with farms, family farms, people that went out and made their living at home raised their kids, sent them to public school, and perpetuated that next generation. 
that's all dried up and blown away a long time ago. What we're competing with now is uh, low-cost milk protein from Mexico. We're competing with these mega dairies out west that irrigate everything. It's very energy intensive. It's adding a lot of greenhouse gases, and it's doing away with employment of uh, people that had a, 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 a way of supporting themselves in Appalachian, Ohio. Do you see any particular challenge being in southeast Ohio to what you're doing to trying to run a business, to trying to run your particular business? Right. Well, I mean, particular challenge, like, that's just one part of it, it's healthcare. But you look at, like, the economic structure of southeastern Ohio, it is all centered around the whole idea of mineral extraction. We're going to come in, we're going to take your coal, enslave a people to do it, come back out of it after we have all these minerals. You know better off than you were before. You're very well worse off. You have toxic water to deal with. You have uh, the degradation that the mineral extraction does, like the, the previous industrial boom of everything powered by coal. And then you hear the alternatives. Well, we're going to do away with coal. It's dirty. You know, it's polluting too much. We're going to go to natural gas. Wow, that's a good trade-off. Let's poison all of our groundwater next. Who's making money off this? Nobody lives in southeastern Ohio. You got multinational conglomerates that are out there serving their shareholders at the expense of the local people. So that brings to mind a question for me, which is, I know this is a family operation that you've been running. Mm-hmm. Why stay? Do you, have you ever had a thought of, you know what, I need to get out of this rat race? Right. Well, unfortunately, I don't have anywhere to self-deport myself to. I'm here and for the long haul, and, uh, you know, I'm going to make the best out of it, and that's what it is. Whenever I took myself and broke myself, broke myself away from milk processors that set a certain threshold on you have to deal with the manufacturer and you're going to pay them what they are legally required minimally to pay you which is a bad point to be in at any point it's like working for minimum wage only you're putting your own capital investment into it and broke myself away and said i'm taking all these people it's in the middle of producing milk processing it marketing it i'm taking them all out of the picture and i'm going to do that myself and that enables me to, to deal right with the people's consuming cheese. I'm not dealing with someone that's a uh, broker, that's going to a manufacturer, that's going to another marketing firm, that's going to another. It's me and the customer. And, you know, it's like uh, Harry Truman said, the buck stops here. Someone wants to talk to me about cheese. Hey, you should do this. Or, hey, this is a great idea. Or I love this about this. Or I don't like this about that. I'm there to change that. I'm there to make it better. And I think... By controlling all that vertically, I control the grass that I grow, the cows that I breed, everything that goes into making this one product, that at the end deal, whenever I hand this over to the consumer, the final person, I can know in my heart that this is the absolute best that we could do. The one thing that I feel very passionately about as far as saving this area, if you're not taking something that you're creating and adding value to and shipping it to somewhere, that's bringing dollars back to this community, it's a continually negative spiral. And we've seen that play out through the past 20 to 30 years. We've seen uh, farm equipment dealerships go out of business and sell everything. We've seen family farms have the auction at the end of the day. You know, and it's sad because there's so many people and so much potential, but now we've got one out of four people that are able-bodied working Americans that choose not to work, that doesn't show up in the unemployment numbers. You know, you got to ask yourself why that. Ohio used to lead America in uh, a lot of things as far as agriculture. Now we lead the country in the number of opiate deaths. What do you see as the next wave? It's not. It's not coal mining, right? Maybe or maybe it is 
isn't natural gas it's extraction or putting the water back right. into the ground yeah so <laughs> <laughs> we could be the biggest brine dump in america <laughs> none of those are good futures no right but as that. you as you drive through what do you see as mm-hmm. the possible future well i think manufacturing of course you know it doesn't have the footprint that it used to have we're generating a lot of things and have a lot of natural resources of why are we just extracting that and sending it somewhere else to be manufactured and i i see agriculture you know, I see an agrarian community that it used to be that, you know, that everybody could participate in. You know, now it's so far removed. If someone is farming in Gallia County, they produce a good that goes and it gets modified and changed and processed into something else that goes to a distribution center and comes back to them through Walmart. You know, and so much people has handled it. It's increased in cost, but it's not increased in value. And, you know, I think that's something really that Americans, the Ohioans in particular, could go out and change. You know, they need to look at this thing as a self-fulfilling prophecy. We're going to be successful. We're equal with people on an urban footing. We're actually better off. We have so many good resources that are still here that hadn't been profitable enough to take from us that we can make the best out of that. Look at the, the water that we have here. If you was in California and had this kind of water, people would be exuberant, you know. They don't have this much water going through the Central Valley. Everything out there that is grown and processed dairy-wise is all irrigated. You know, we have a low cost of production. We have an able workforce that has a, a high unemployment, so people would have a lot of initiative to go out and work. And, you know, I hear something, too, that doesn't really play true with me, that we can't get Americans to go out and do this. You know, we have to have so many people here to pick tomatoes and to milk cows and to process our chickens and stuff like that because Americans won't go out and do that. Whenever you come from a place that has a substandard living wage and you're coming here to be exploited, and, you know, and that's what I look at it as. It's just a clear-cut exploitation of people from Central America and from Mexico to come and work for these mar- multinational conglomerates to enrich them and to send a little bit of a pittance back to their home country to help support everybody. That's all dollars that are exit in Gallia County. All dollars are exit in Ohio. And what I'm proposing is that people should be able to go out and if they took the percentage of their income and put it into food Everybody wins. People have jobs. People, and you look at all the ancillary benefits of that too. Because in Gallia County, particularly, you had feed mills, you had uh, you know tractor uh, dealerships and equipment dealerships, and you had a whole other economy that was based around agriculture. And it's just all gone. For your children, are you raising them to uh, farm or be dairy farmers? Well, I'm either uh, turning them into dairy farmers or I'm giving them an adverse reaction to it. You know, they go out and they're involved in all of my day-to-day operations. They help me milk several times a day. And we fit that around school and their extracurricular activities. But, you know, it's like uh, my grandma said, a little hard work's never killed anybody. We all want our children to be happy. But is your hope for them that they stay and dig into the soil and and be a part of the future of of the area? What I want them to learn how to do is to show up and put their best into what they do. Whether it's farming, whether it's public radio, whether whatever it is, as long as you show up and you're involved and you're engaged and you put your best and put everything you have into it, the money's negligible. You're going to make enough money to survive and you're going to make enough money to thrive if you're doing what you believe in as far as change. Then what part is missing from maybe a generation or two ago where the farm farms were thriving and it was because was it because there were no workers or was it because it was not profitable that there was that gap where where family farms ended up having to be sold for auction and 
Well, you see a transition, you know, in the 70s through 80s of American agriculture. It went from being a family-based, small uh, type of operation that supported everyone in that group to a larger, to from one person milking uh, uh, 20 to 30 cows is what you've seen all around this area and in, in West Virginia and Kentucky. What you see now is people out west milking several thousand cows, and they're using, you know, exploitative labor to do it. And if you're not growing bigger and bigger in volume, what it is is they put a uh, federal milk order into effect that backed it up to where they said, here's what we're paying for it. And if margins get tighter and tighter and tighter, you can't be the guy out here milking 30 cows. you got to be milking 100. And you add on that 100, you need to hire someone to help you. Okay, well, you got to roof, you know, have feed for that. So you got to lease more land. And then it's like this cycle of upsizing to try and make the same amount of money. And you can see that in the uh, economic uh, uh, status of all Americans right now, that if you adjust it for inflation to current day, people earn less than what they were in 1965. I can see it. I can feel it. You can see, like, people had a boom and bust, and they had different waves through that to where they borrowed more money to fill more hole at the time, but they haven't really gained ground. Economically speaking, we're back in pre-1965. So and so in this area, in terms of people being able to make Southeast Ohio great again. Right. <laughs> um, Let's say make it better. Let's say make it better. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> to make Southeast Ohio better. And if and if farming and if agriculture, excuse me, if agriculture is it, what do our 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 political leaders what do they need to know? Mm. Our political leaders. Uh, you know, I can't think of a single person that represents me in the government that has my best interests at heart. What I see happening is out here chasing after a special interest group to give you, you know, or lobbyists continually funneling money into these people can whose uh, eternal campaigns that run cycle after cycle after cycle. I'm concentrating on, you know, all of their representatives are concentrating on being reelected more than they are in representing their base, which is self-defeating. If they was out there representing me, I would naturally want to vote for them. And they would need all of the money from big pharma, from big food, from big, you know, everything, big energy to come out and compete against each other. They would win the competition of ideas and, and progress. But what we see is our local government, our, uh, our state government, our federal government all mired into this dysfunctional uh, discord of, uh, of competing uh, uh, ideological issues, you know. I don't think that faces most Americans. It doesn't face me. I think we should work on, um, let's do basic stuff the government was designed to, like have clean water. You know, there's a good one. Or have roads that you could drive on, or everybody have access to the same digital technology, you know? And push all the social issues aside for a little bit, or minimize our amount of time and our emphasis on it. And that's why I see big government controlling. You know, we're gonna replace this healthcare system. Oh, why? And we're just going to add to it, modify it, and name it something different. There's no substantive change. If they really wanted to fix health care, they would go with the people that's making money off of it. Well, Gallia County is one of Ohio's 80-plus counties that voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. And so our current president gets to say that he is representing America right. and people like you mm -hmm. in terms of in rural America right. because that was the— constituency that hadn't been heard or had mm -hmm. been left out. So is that how you feel? 
Well, you know, how this guy, a uh, uh, born into billionaire status, represents my needs and my issues, it's ridiculous. I don't believe that at all. I think most people, they have that realization. They understand. He doesn't, they, they might come out to people that uh, uh, ask him or question him about it and defend that position because they feel like they have to. You know, if I voted for him, I supported him, whatever. What they really wanted was an upheaval in Washington. They wanted to see something change. And to think that, you know, I like Hillary Clinton and I had a lot of things that uh, I, I really would have uh, supported with her. But I don't think it was substantive change. And I think that people have seen this area in particular in a downward spiral. And even if it means, so to speak, blowing up the government to change that, to introduce some chaos and anarchy and hope everything shakes down to being more in their lean, I think that's what happened. You know, whenever I was driving around and I see Trump after Trump after Trump signing people's yards, that's a committed person that's going to go out and vote. If they're going to go out and stick a sign that says that in their yard, they're going to go out and they're going to turn out to vote. And you see that, and I'm thinking, well, am I in some type of a cultural monolith where people don't, you know, get what I'm getting? I think most people, and I talked to a lot of Republicans and a lot of people who supported him, I think most people realize this guy is a, a demagogue, a charlatan, a bigot, whatever you do, but they think he's going to represent change. They think he's just selfish and arrogant enough. And, you know, it's better to have the complete asshole that's on your side versus, you know, someone that kind of tepidly supports you. And so what you're seeing, and correct me if I'm wrong, what you're seeing is people that want to see whatever happens, whatever you consider to be chaos and destruction to be, they want to see that happen because it's change. And then if it happens to, you know, uh, drain the swamp or uh, <laughs> make people change their minds about what's important in the government right. as long that chaos is worth it the mm -hmm. risk is worth what you're getting out of it is basically what you're saying what i see the reaction is you have so many people that supported donald trump enough to elect him in a pivotal state like ohio is defending that to a certain degree but what they feel is is like they see i'm supporting a, a, a you know i'm gonna put this guy from exxon mobile you know rex on my What's his last name? Tillerson. Tillerson. Rex Tillerson. I was going to say Harrison, but <laughs> Tillerson. I know exactly. But put this guy in a department or the uh, secretary of state. We're going to load up the department of energy. We're going to load up every department in the cabinet with people that are either ex-lobbyists or people that have a profiteering motive for being in the government, which I understand that. If I was going to do public service, it would be some way the reason that I rationalize exploiting it for my own good. That's why I stay out of it. <laughs> you and that's it. why these guys should stay out of it. But I think that people look at that decision. They think, well, we supported them. We're going to kind of hold on to that. But whenever they see, like, uh, you see so many people in Ohio that got health care for the first time because of the expansion of, uh, of Medicare. Medicaid. Medicaid. 700,000 people right. were able to get health care insurance because of the expansion of Medicaid that Governor Kasich okayed. Um, broke with the Republican Party right. in a big way mm -hmm. to accept that version. I mean, that initiative that part of the Affordable Care Act mm -hmm. or otherwise known as Obamacare and got what close to 13 billion dollars for the state right as an infu infusion of cash and so you're saying that yeah I'm saying whenever people have something like that and they feel like they're empowered now I can make different decisions I can go out and start my own business I don't have to worry about this I have a safety net to catch me and my family they're going to go out and they're going to think I've had something taken from me. 
And that's the way they're going to feel whenever it comes out that, you know, they redo or, you know, revamp health care. You know, they're going to repeal and replace. Trump care. Trump care. Whenever it comes out the new version, it affects people. The average voter out here in Ohio, especially southeastern Ohio, they're going to lose. And it sounds like, you know, and what I hear from the experts is that about every demographic is going to lose. And they see all the, it's going to be a backlash. This next election is going to go the other way. He's going to be a one-term president because we elected him for change, and we didn't elect him to change it against us. Okay. And that's what happened. That's where they make their voices heard again is right. they say, never mind, you can't do this anymore. We, you didn't do what we wanted to do. So it has to go to the elections for them yeah. to be able to change. You're going to see someone farther right get elected in place of them, mm-hmm. you know, or you're going to see somebody that is going to empower the people that are outspoken against them. I mean, I think that a lot of people was inside of a bubble as far as the media is concerned. And that's what I'm talking about, like everyone that I hear in the media are reporting on things they heard on Twitter. Or on Facebook, you know, they're not reporting to the person they talk to in the line at the grocery store. They're not talking to the guy that, you know, they met at the farmer's market. I don't think they're getting a very clear picture of it. They're narrow escaping what they form as an opinion. And people, that's how Donald Trump came to power in America. You know, it was a ridiculous idea. A year before he got elected, he was going to be president. And that's all you heard. How ridiculous is it? And then he starts picking off his opponents one at a time. And then he starts tailoring his message through, the, the, through you know, uh, Steve Bannon to fit what needed to get him elected. He got elected. And that ain't staying elected. He's going to suffer backlash in the next general election whenever it comes up that, you know, here's what I delivered on. I got a lot of lobbyists and a lot of uh, rich people, billionaires in my, you know, in my cabinet. I served a bunch of special interests. I didn't really stop any of these problems. Will you reelect me? America's going to say no. They're going to want change farther in a different direction. You know, he needs to be able to get the people that it faces in the pocketbook elections. You know, to quote Bill Clinton, it, well, was it Bill Clinton or maybe it was James Carville? He says the economy stupid, and that's what I feel like. Anytime I go in too deep into a social issue, like people are going to vote on abortion, people are going to vote on on uh, on jobs, on immigration, on all these issues, people are going to vote on what affects their pocketbook, how much money they have left at the end of the month, they feel better off or worse off, or I want some type of change. So you're saying, and to bring it home, if there is no, uh, there are no, there's no significant uptick of jobs in Southeast Ohio, in particular, Ohio as a whole, we'll stick right. it, we'll keep it that way. Um, that that is going to be the thing that either keeps people home, mm-hmm. because I think that was another uh, concern mm-hmm. or or surprise, maybe. That I think that's the problem. The last election was keeping people at home, and that's what. I got off on a tangent, but I think that's what the media played into was, I think Hillary Clinton's so far ahead, we predict her winning by this much, then there's no really reason, and it kept a lot of people from voting. And if I would blame anyone on, on hacking the election, it wasn't the Russians that turned it against us. It was just exposing information that was already out there. What I think really turned the election was Facebook. Will you explain? Well, you see people forming their own opinions about this is the group I'm involved in. It's a ridiculous idea that this guy's going to be president. I got too much shit to do today. I can't make it to go vote. I bet a lot of those people right now are either ashamed of doing it or they wish they would have. Because, you see, as many people as outraged about having Donald Trump in the White House and all the people that was on the fence would have voted against him, we wouldn't have him in there. 
And I think also that it's part the media, but I think a lot of it had to do with is a referendum on how they felt Obama treated him over the past eight years. I think if it comes down to the, the nuts and bolts of why people in southeastern Ohio did not have the same turnout, the same numbers that they did for Obama that they did for Hillary Clinton is specifically because they see the way the past eight years affected them. They see the, the, the neighbor kid turn into an opiate addict and start doing heroin. That wasn't around that long ago. I grew up in this small town America, and it wasn't like a, a, a heroin den within rock throwing distance from you. But was that an Obama problem? Was that something that was growing for decades? I think, well, I think it was growing for decades. I think that the first time I'd ever seen the influence of opiate abuse in southeastern Ohio, I'd say it was 2002. And you started to see the, the enhancement of, uh, of doctors prescribing oxycodone, oxycodone for all kinds of stuff. You got restless leg syndrome. My neighbor had restless leg syndrome, and he's 76, and they prescribed him 20 milligrams of oxycodone three times a day. Damn. Yeah. What I don't understand is how the DEA can say, okay, here we have all these drug surplus wholesalers that we're supposed to be monitoring from 2008 until current day. And they say, well, it's okay if every person in Martintown in Kentucky has 800 doses of oxycodone. It's okay if Boone County, West Virginia has that much. And you see it explode. You see, in 2002, it was uh, uh, high school kids that were tired of getting drunk that were crushing up their uh, uh, pain medication for their grandparents. You know, small problem. And you see it just start to build and build and build to where everybody you know is doing oxycodone. And then it comes back to where we're going to retract that, but we control the border where all a lot of black tar heroin's coming into America, and we control Afghanistan, which somehow in the 16 years that we've been controlling it has turned into the second largest heroin producer in the world. How'd that happen? Where's it going? You know, I think it's killing its blight across poor, rural, predominantly white, working-class America, and you can see the effects of it today. But who do we blame? Who do we blame? I'd say take it to the top. The buck stops here. If you're in charge of the DEA, you're in charge of the FBI, you're in charge of all of the executive branch that enforces all of these laws, then who else do I blame? In the metropolitan areas in the 80s, it, it was the American government that was pushing crack into, sure. into the neighborhoods. Yep. That's mm-hmm. on record. Right. So, hmm. And we did see in... Um, Wish Aaron was in here to talk about the years of, um, especially in West Virginia, and we can talk about it in our area, but the rise of the pill mills. Right. And, and the epicenter right here. Right here. And as we talk about, we won't be in love with the problem. So let's get in love with the answer. Well, you um, know, I think the answer, you know, is everybody collectively work together. Let's work on our problems. Urban people, rural people, we face a lot of the same issues. Let's find the 90% of the stuff that we all agree on and start working towards that and elect people that represent that, you know. And currently we're not. Why we're not representing ourselves in government, being a democracy, is ridiculous. You know, I I don't understand it. I don't understand the person that goes out and willingly votes against their best self-interest. And that's what I've seen in Donald Trump. That's why I've seen the poorest people in Gallia County had a Trump sign in her yard. I'm like, do you know this guy's like a billionaire? You ever see? I, you see the picture of him sitting on a golden, you know, chair, and his, his kids riding a lion, and his wife's all windblown. I'm like, what? What in the hell does this guy have in common with your issues? You know, aspirational. 
aspirational. It's sort of like the, uh, the you know, the uh, the evangelical preachers that preach the prosperity. You know, if you're doing the right things in America, you're going to be like this guy. I don't think so. You know, you got the 10 percent, you got the 90 percent. The 10 percent take all these divisive issues like racism, bigotry, you know, the, the, the injustice in the criminal court system, the economy, all these things and pit all of us against each other. So we are always fighting among the 90 percent, but not taking it to the 10%. The 10% has enough in their pockets to help feed all the 90%, and it's never going to come to that. And you see an example. You see someone is trying to unite poor white people and poor black people and poor Hispanic people, like Martin Luther King, get shot. And that's when um, many historians will say, well, when he was speaking just to issues of civil rights and to African Americans or black people, that... That was one thing that was worthy of um, being followed and 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 being monitored by the government, surveilled and be surveilled. An American citizen being surveilled by the government. Yeah. Um, but when the conversation came to uniting um, poor and speaking more about poverty instead of ethnic and racial issues, that that he was no he. That's when the threat is there. Um, so with that, who would step up? <laughs> who would step up? Any good American would be ashamed to be a part of this sham called the American political system. You look at bipartisan politics, you know, we're either going to vote for this disgusting or this one right here. Or neither of them is going to represent us. There's no viable third party. Are you going to run for office? <laughs> run for office, no. I, I'm, I'm unvettable. Ah. <laughs> Fair answer, actually. Fair answer. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen any buds of, <laughs> of homegrown activists turn politician? Not enough. I see people that's mad about the problem, but people can't, you know, actually involve themselves enough to try and change it. So you haven't seen, like, where do we go from here no, just next? I and don't. if, because if our confusion. current confusion, I see confusion still, if we have a disruptor in the White House, if that's what's happening, mm-hmm. then what happens afterwards? It's a good question. Some yeah. were saying that uh, Kasich is is positioning for a twenty. I've lived in John run. Kasich's Ohio for his two terms, and is that what I want on a federal level? There we go talking about someone pandering to the ten percent and leaving the ninety percent behind. If it's to fly back from campaigning to to defund Planned Parenthood, he's got all the time in the world to do it. If it's coming back to 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 reform marijuana laws and get. A lot of enrichment for his close friends and, you know, these special interests that's going to control it in Ohio. He's got all the time in the world to do it. Otherwise, I'm running. What other job in America? I couldn't get someone to come milk cows for me for two years while I was trying to get a better job. What other job? I, I, I got buyer's remorse. I didn't vote for John Kasich, but I want my money back. <laughs> he hasn't really done anything to serve me. He went on this exalted campaign for, uh, for president, which it was clear way early in the onset that he didn't have the support to be it. And he's just really neglected Ohio. And if it's coming back to, to pander to a, a narrow base of people that he's going to count on to get uh, elected, I can't see it happening on a national level. You know? uh, well, he did expand Medicaid. He did, begrudgingly. <laughs> but there is people that say, you know, he did a lot of good things. So is right. there a way that you can please everybody? Is there? Is there? I don't, not in America, I don't think. If you get 10 people together, you got 10 different opinions. And, <laughs> you know... Please everybody. How about please, uh, you know, enough people to get reelected? I don't even think people striving for that anymore. You look at like the popularity of the people we elected to Congress and the Senate. 
we elected these people. They're like 28 percent. Yeah. <laughs> and they see that if you put an honest person into this environment, this swarm of lobbyists and special interest money and pressure on getting reelected from the left and from the right. They're going to make choices and stuff that don't naturally coincide with their idealistic vision of why I got into politics. They're going to make choices that's going to get more money into the re-election campaign and get what they think is going to turn out as enough people to vote for them. And the way you do that in America isn't by bringing people together, it's by dividing them apart. And if you can feel people all coalescing on one, one certain thing, you know, that it, it has exploded at that point. It's like to the point of if you all agree on the economy, then let's pick a, a, a gay marriage. And campaign on that or us pick a, a racism we'll campaign on that and you see these wedge issues that people keep coming up with that, that they campaign i want some roads i can drive on i don't want to have lead in our drinking water you know i want education for the kids that's what we got into having government for not to control us and tell us who we are and what we should believe and how we should act how many years have you been in business well, in business for myself. For yourself. Um, about eight years. Okay. Well, I've been uh, making cheese for about eight years. You know, we've been in uh, milking cows for like 12. Okay. And before that, I worked for uh, a multinational food conglomerate. You were part of? <laughs> I was part of the problem. Big food. <laughs> yeah, I was part of the problem. You know, I was out there effectively trying to uh, manufacture uh, pizza rolls so kids can come home from school and microwave them and become part of a supersized generation that we have. You know, it's terrible. And then what happened? Well, then they outsourced my job to an Indian engineering firm. And I firsthand, you know, experienced displacement. And I'm like, what am I going to do? Am I going to go somewhere else and get a job? Am I going to move everyone? Am I, you know, and I had those opportunities. And I thought, you know, I'm going to dig in here and I'm going to make a success out of who I am and where I come from. That was a lot bigger determiner. I mean, flying when I worked for a different organization, it was, you know, fly in, well, so-and-so is going to be in charge of you, and you're doing this and that, and you already had a place. You're starting out from scratch, and what you can do with your own hands, it's a lot more validating on a lot of different levels than, you know, peer reviews. What's your progression looking ahead at the next 10 years on a, as, as the political climate being what it is and how we know that affects where we live, how we live where do you see that progression going, and how do you see yourself preparing for that for the future? Well, you know, personally, I don't think, you know, myself, I'm not going to be a legislator. I'm not going to be a governor, but I might be raising one. And I think that you have to instill these values and these beliefs in people in the future. You need to question authority. What's in it for the common people? The 90% could easily take over the 10%, and it's just all the different things that we fight among ourselves about that's keeping them in power. And what I hope that people realize at the end of the day is that each individual out here can change government, first of all, by voting. Forty-some percent of the population voting kind of makes me ashamed to be an American. We had 80 percent of the population vote. If we had 90 percent of the population vote, we wouldn't have any of these assholes and bureaucrats in the positions that they are that's determining our futures. People need to get engaged. Any person I talk to, I try and make that change with. I'm going to make it on an individual level. I'm going to try and make it on a group level. You know, the thing that I hear, uh, and one thing that I had is, uh, you know, about NPR that I, I, I find unbalanced is, is a lot of times it's four people that agree with each other, you know, or, or I see on the right wing media, you know, what are all these people yelling about and how are they also singing in unison? You know, it's like, it either slants way hard to the right or it slants way hard to the left, and people 
are, you know, and it seems to me, you know, from the outside perspective, just as a news consumer in general, that broadcast journalism is fitting itself to its own existing audience. It's making people deeper in their own opinions. It's not trying to, uh, it's not objective the way it used to be. You know, in general, it's like, well, we're going to pander to this group or we're going to pander to that group. And we're going to take a narrative that we're going to try and fit to that and assimilate all these people to it through the stories and through the editing and the production and the everything that goes into here's what we're wanting to tell you. Instead of the way that I felt before was that it was here's the facts and you're an intelligent person. Make up your own mind. You're just saying people need to be more about opening people's minds to other perspectives rather than... That's totally what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. You know, that I, I listen to people, whether they're on the far right extremists or they're on the far left or they're somewhere in between, and you find out the general public or the most people that I deal with day to day are somewhere between those two. You know, and it seems like to me that people that focus on the news and focus on opinion and fact conflate the two, pick an extreme view, and tailor a narrative to fit that one side or the other. Just as a consumer. (laughs) Just as someone who we're talking to. Right. (laughs) So how do we fix that? We as an industry. Yeah. I don't know. You don't know? Uh, Yeah. What do you want to be? How do you want to be addressed? How do you... what would your ideal news source be? Well, my ideal news source, I'd say, is NPR. I want something that is not beholden to commercial interests, not beholden to, uh, you know, the, the government in general. Someone that's going to come objectively, investigate, and give to me all the facts that I need to make my own decisions. Because, you know, I just... I, I'm part of the, the, the electorate or the Democratic uh, electorate out here that you see that just doesn't like to be told what to do. You know, as an American, people in general never like to be told what to do, whether it goes back to the British telling us what to do or it goes. But what I like to have is all the facts. And I just don't see that. I don't see that on the Internet and I don't see that in broadcast journalism in general, especially like television. You know, and I would say PBS and NPR is about as close as you get to that, you know, divine truth that you're looking for. But, you know, it's all subjective. Okay. And we're not just holding up NPR signs back here for the <laughs> listeners. No. I know. What's I'm your relationship with public media? Complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. Very complicated. I'm kind of shunned off from the rest of the world because of geographically where I live. Out here in rural America, especially Appalachia, you don't see like the, uh, the type of data networks and the type of uh, interface that I would have with the digital communication that you would have if you lived in Columbus or Cincinnati or, you know, or New York or anywhere like that. The thing I like about the radio is it's continuous. It's right there telling me what is important in the world. And, uh, you know, it's easy and accessible. If I tried to find all of this information on the Internet, like I could if I lived in a, a, an urban environment, you know, it would be right there. And But the good thing about it is it always challenged my viewpoint. Whenever you are out here in a vacuum and you're listening to only your own, your own opinion and the people whose opinions that agree with yours, you know, I think that's, that's dangerous. It's dangerous for the left. It's dangerous for the right. It's dangerous for everybody. And that's what I like about NPR. I don't agree with everything, but, you know, it challenges what I already believe, and it makes me continually reexamine where I come from and what I think is to be truthful. I think that it should be 100% funded by the government with no restrictions on it, double the budget, shouldn't have to take time out for pledge drives, 
Everybody should be uh, uh, engaged in listening and using this as a forum, a, a public square to air their uh, sides of every issue. And uh, I think for the most part it is that, but it kind of uh, you know distracts from it whenever you look at the different commercial entities that's trying to get involved themselves in NPR. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's not, it's a lot better than like Fox or ABC or in, you know any of your mainstream media, but. You know, it's still looking at that group of people and saying, I'm going to fit a narrative that these people digest and they're going to be supporting it with NPR. People are outraged and they're outraged about different things. And they should be outraged at the 10 percent because, you know, that's who we're all fighting against. And I hope that through doing all this, I could try to shed some light on common people's issues and how we can take back the power that we've given over to the government. What do you want to see from us? What do I want to see from NPR? Uh, from WOUB? WOUB specifically. Uh, WOUB, you know, I I wouldn't listen to it as much as I do if I don't believe in it. I would like to see as far as uh, what WOUB does to the community would be give it, you know, unfiltered, unbiased information, uh, you know, that affects people day to day, that they can help make informed decisions to to change your future. And I think that that's that is missing in society. I just want the facts. I want to hear someone say something for it. I want to hear someone say something against it. Because somewhere in that friction, that differential between opinions, people can flesh out what they think is valid for their own belief. And so the first thing, and the first thing is, is getting engaged. Right. And then what's next? What's the old adage? You need to be the change that you wish to see in the world. If you want to see cleaner water, then stop polluting. You want to see uh, uh, less carbon in the atmosphere? Then don't drive so much. Don't fly as many places. Go out and you know practice that type of lifestyle. And if everybody can come to the conclusion that we're all living on this one world and we're all involved in this one society together, why are we fighting each other so much? You know, why don't we come to an agreement on what we think as far as priorities and work on those? We got plenty of stuff that we all have in common: urban, rural, white, black, immigrant, naturalized citizen. Everything that people have in common, they want to have an, uh, uh, that they can make progress and to make America better. Dalai Lama, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. I just ripped off this quote. I should have given him credit for that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's like being in the Hall of Justice. I got all my, all my public radio superheroes in one place. You passed. Oh, yeah. Scott Simon in here with you. <laughs> keep him, keep him, you pull him out. That's on your third visit. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> you get to, you get to it's like the, the pledge drives if you right. come During this many drive. times. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, thank you. When we come back, we had a seance with the Ouija board from the Cider House, and uh, the spirits just gave us the name Water Witches. And welcome back to the 457 SEO. I'm Atish Baijian. Joining us now, one of the newest members of the WEB Newsroom family, Emily Vota. Yay! Yay! She's our arts and culture journalist, and she's got lots of cool information about happenings and bands and all that culture stuff that's happening around town. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. So what do you got on tap um, for us this episode? What's going on? What do we need to know about? For sure, for sure. I talked to um, Athens uh, Water Witches, which are a local band. They're they're putting out a new new record soon. And um, 
Well, gosh, okay. So they're an interesting uh, band because they kind of pull from acts like Mo- The Modern Lovers, uh, Velvet Un- Underground, Aphrodite's Child. And it's also just kind of like psychedelic freak folk type stuff. <laughs> <laughs> psychedelic freak folk? folk? Yeah, yeah. I'm totally getting that. I'm in. Is that <laughs> on a shirt somewhere? I'm a psychedelic freak folk. folk. <laughs> nice. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. And they've been, uh, I mean, they're, they've been just churning out these real sincere cosmic tunes for about two years now. And um, it's uh, Ethan Bartman, Charlie Tovell, and Matt Clouston. Um, but more than just like a rock and roll curiosity, they're, they're also, they also have like a general life philosophy. It's founded on these like tenets of human love and, and a real acknowledgement of uh, a, a tendency towards some more nihilistic ponderings. It, kind of, it comes out a lot in their music. Ooh. Everything they do sort of follows this same um, aesthetic. And last year they released their uh, debut, Feathers, and they just finished, end of last year they finished Halcyon, which is their second full length. And um, it's due out in June, but right now they have an Indiegogo campaign going on to try to press the album to vinyl for its initial release. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you can get some pretty cool stuff. They'll do a whole cassette for you where they cover one of your favorite songs and then oh. write a song for you. Oh, Susan yeah. loves vinyl too. I do. I love But vinyl. no, did you hear they'll do a song for you, yeah. like a customized song? Yeah. Oh. I have How ideas already. Right. $78. Oh, <laughs> oh. it's not that Like bad. a 78. Oh, that's neat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, and for six hundred sixty-six dollars, you can have them. Uh, <laughs> it got real expensive. Real <laughs> no, fast. those numbers. Yeah, yeah. 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 Six hundred sixty-six dollars. Oh. Yeah. They'll play a private event for you, like a soiree or no. ice cream social or, <laughs> <laughs> or ritual. All right, any kind of ritual. <laughs> a little seance. <laughs> A little uh, sacrificial. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, I spoke. I spoke to them in their uh, cosmic coven, which is a, a basement on the east side of um, Athens, um, where uh, where they recorded Halcyon. Um, I talked to them about the founding of their band, uh, their church, which is the last church of the children of the universe, and the, all types of different uses for Ouija boards. Oh, oh sure, okay. sure. Charlie and I had a band called uh, the Soft Rock Project, which became Feathers. Uh, and the whole point was like it was gonna be soft music, uh, like soft rock, and uh, I, like kind of Defender Bandheart or like a kind of fo- like freaky folk music like that. We played a, a few shows. We played Nelsonville, and Clausen played with us now and again. And then we had another band that we had started. Uh, sort of on a whim, a whimsical night, and it was like we were going for like psych rock, like droning, playing the same thing for like 10 minutes and, you know, like some improvisational psychedelic jams with Clouston and this other guy, Matt Waite. So we had these two different projects, Feathers, Halcyon, and everybody was really confused, and a lot of people would be like, I like the name Feathers, or I hate Feathers, or Halcyon. 
What does that like, mean? Yeah. <laughs> How do you say Halcyon? Yeah. Hal- Hal- it, was, it was perfect Hal- at, like, at a loud rock show. Like, <clears throat> mm-hmm. what's the name of your guys' new band again? Yeah. Halcyon. You know, and you're like yeah, screaming yeah. into the person's what ear. What does it they're mean? Like, what does yeah. it mean? It means greatness, by the way. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's like bygone days of good times or whatever. So then we had a seance with the Ouija board from the Cider House, and uh, the spirits just gave us the name Water Witches. It was just cosmic like that. What are you waiting for? Forever's now. I take on a flesh rooted in the ground. Some of our earliest shows were really just these crazy, weird house parties. And uh, we would do really weird stuff like, you know, rituals and whiskey baptisms and. Our buddy Unbaptisms. Unbaptisms. You can get debaptized uh, if you're baptized against your will as a child. Yeah, we, we created a, a, a fake real church called The Last Church of the Children of the Universe. And uh, it's basically a church for the unholy, the unwashed mass, where we believe in... Uh, where we live until we die. Yeah. And love every minute of it. Yeah, and love everybody. Take care of each other and uh, accept each other. We successfully issued a vinyl that you know that was like completely came independent. Out really well, completely independent. Sounds good. It looks good. And this one, I feel like it's going to sound better and look better, even than that. And um, you know, if you want to support some local weirdos and some art, uh, <coughs> you know, it's a worthwhile thing. What the hell? <laughs> Can you explain uh, the one question I have? Who plays what instrument or instruments? For sure, for sure. Um, Charlie play, plays drums. Um, Ethan's a vocalist. He's, he was one. He's the main person who spoke. Um, and he also plays guitar. And uh, then uh, uh, Clouston plays bass. Gotcha. <laughs> I could, from all the music and the effects, I couldn't tell where we were going with the instruments. I know. I was like, no, because I appreciate the creativity, and even right. though they're using the witch stick right. doctrine, right? Yeah. But it's for love and all that, yeah. and so there's the fun part. I get it. It's but twisting, turning something on its head a little bit, a little bit, but man. I think it takes some getting used to. No, I'm okay with the. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm okay with the music. Yeah, you know, know the dude. music's. I like. The yeah, music. but all the other stuff, great. I'm like, ah, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like feathers is this really? When I've heard it for the first time, I was really, I was kind of shocked because, um, I mean, you see like the imagery and stuff, which I I thought was really interesting right away. And, uh, but honestly, the music is this this and, and that was a track from uh, Halcyon. That's their first, um, uh, single. Um, totality is a little bit harder, mm-hmm. but uh, the stuff on Feathers, their first record, it's really surprisingly very, very accessible, really poppy type stuff. Still has real weird lyrics, but um, yeah. Well, I also spoke with uh, Jake Eddy, who is a teenager who's also a studio musician, and he's just really fluent in talking about any kind of genre of music. I mean, this this guy knows like 
everything. I, I first talked to him because I, I interviewed him for a feature that, that is on the Culture page right now um, about um, an album called The Miller Girl that he did with another West Virginia musician named Steve Hussey. That's kind of like an alternative country record. But uh, this album that I talked to him about, um, Smartphone, he recorded entirely on his cell phone. Hmm. He did some really interesting, um, some really cool covers on there. He does a uh, he does uh, Route 66. He does uh, Jill Scott Heron, uh, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. It's Gil Scott. Gil Scott. Gil, Gil Scott. Scott, right. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's, it, it's pretty cool. <laughs> And so does Jake want a career in the music industry or is this just something these crazy kids are doing these days? <laughs> <laughs> he definitely he definitely does. And I think really what he wanted to do is um, it's, it's just it's sort of a it's kind of a weird, almost performance arty type thing to make a whole record on your on your phone. I think he's just into, this was interesting because the first time I interviewed him, it was much more in a context for this record that is like much, it's totally acoustic. 
and uh, he has a pretty large fan base in the bluegrass community in in the area that he's from. So I thought this was like a, a really interesting move. So I think it almost kind of speaks to him wanting a career in music that's just beyond being like a studio musician that does bluegrass, which is still, I mean, super technically difficult. But um, it seems like that's not all he wants to do. Right, <laughs> and what a great marketing platform to say. It's all on my phone, all on the smartphone. Is do you, do you do you think he's going to do that, something like this again, or is this sort of like a one-off for him doing I it on the phone? Think, I'm pretty sure it's a pretty much a one-off thing. When I was talking to him, I think this is um, pretty much the only like iPhone record that he has coming up. But um, he's working on all types of projects right now. A lot of them are um, he's still doing stuff with Steve Hussey. Like I said, for uh, the last record was the Miller Girl, which is was pretty gosh darn good. <laughs> And what and he's a student. So what year is he? What, what, oh. He is. Let's see. He's in high school still. Oh. Wow. Dang. I know, right? Isn't, and when you talk to him, like, I, I kept on, um, you know, because when I was communicating with him, like, setting things up, it's like, wow, this person uh, is so, is so tech, text, so uh, uh, technology literate. Like, he, he was always, if I'd message him on Facebook, he'd be back at me in, like, you know, five minutes or something. And same thing with, like, text <laughs> messaging. And he's so, like, and I, I'm about 10 years older than he is, but uh, there is there is a difference. <laughs> <laughs> He's supposed to be yes, in class. We won't right. talk about that. <laughs> <Right. but okay>. <laughs> <laughs> well, much uh, continued success to him. Yeah. yeah. Love the creativity. Yeah. So we got Water Witches and we got Jake Eddy. What else do we have going on in town? What else is going on in music? There's a lot happening. And even, uh, I mean, outside of, outside of music, we've got the um, Athens International Film and Video Festival coming up and that's just a spectacular event it's a world-class event it's the uh let's see it's the 44th there are films in the festival from 41 different countries there's 235 films and that brings in people from all over um filmmakers from out of the area people who just like independent films it's a really cool festival and it really is recognized like in the general like film festival circuit as being like kind of like an off like a festival that will feature works that m- maybe don't get the recognition that they deserve from from larger festivals and it, i mean it's still it's an oscar qualifying festival for the um short narration and animation so it's i mean it's a it's a big deal and it's just here in athens so nice, <laughs> nice. oscar qualifying yeah oh. oscar, oscar yeah, gold i didn't know that that's <laughs> awesome nice Lit Fest? Lit Fest, yeah, Literature Fest, which doesn't get talked about a lot. I, I didn't know anything about it, and I, I was a student here for a while um, with an English minor yet. But um, <laughs> it's a really cool uh, program put on by the uh, creative writing, uh, program in creative writing here. And uh, they have a couple really impressive, like, new um, voices in literature. Uh, Mary Capello, uh, Gerald Early, Tom Slay. And uh, that's taking place April 5th, 6th, and 7th. And it's these free lectures. Um, t- sometimes they're in the morning, sometimes at night. But they're. Is it officially called Lit Fest? It's called, well, Spring Literary Festival. But, oh, you know, if you're in the know, you call it Lit Fest, <laughs> I guess. It's lit. <laughs> it is lit. It it's works going on to be so lit. many levels, but not. <laughs> Probably the next really big thing that's happening is uh, Mountain Stage is coming to the People's Bank Theater on April 9th, and there'll be a big feature about this on the Culture page. Um, Bridget Kearney, who is from Lake Street Dive, she has a really great um, musician, plays stand-up bass, um, is going to be there. Uh, Shamika Copeland, who I interviewed, and uh, she just put out a, a really spectacular record late last year and then uh, the tea sisters who are like a real um upbeat sort of spunky uh west coast folk outfit <laughs> but that that's all i got 
Nice. We love so lot to do in the region. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Well, thank you, Emily, uh, for joining us and uh, being a part of this, uh, the crazy family, the 457 SEO team that's already a part of WOUB News. Uh, and so we're happy that you're joining us. You can read Emily's work at WOUB.org backslash culture. Boom. You can say something. If you want. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> And that's it for this episode of 457SEO. 457SEO is recorded in WOUB Public Media's Telemix studio. Our music is mostly produced by Nathan McGuire. A big shout out to him. Some of the music you've heard in this episode is by our local bands that Emily mentioned. Uh, we'll provide links to those artists in the story for this episode on woub.org, our website. Our producer, Adam Rich, big thanks to him behind the glass, keeping us straight. Also, thanks to everybody that listened, everybody that subscribed and given us a rating. Um, Do it. Yeah. Please. We, we want those five-star ratings because it helps other people come to this podcast and all the opinions will just make this podcast better for you, the listener. Uh, you can provide us any sort of feedback you want as long as it is constructive. Don't be mean because I'll be mean back. Right. She really will. <laughs> That's probably true. Uh, <laughs> it's Trump's America, yo. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we are on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and of course you can find every episode on woub.org. And once again, thanks for tuning in to this episode of 457 SEO. I'm Aaron Payne. I'm Allison Hunter. I'm Susan Tevin. And I'm Atish Baidya. See ya. Bye. Thanks. And thanks to Aaron for editing the show. Oh, yeah. Try to be all quiet about that. I can't think. <laughs> Poor thing. <laughs> That's We're going to have a good time.